Hello and welcome to Architecture, the premier podcast on architecture. My name is Owen Dimitri and I am joined by our two wonderful co-hosts, Zane Ross. Hello. And Felipe Flores. Hi, how's everyone doing? Today we will be dis- finishing our discussion on sustainability, both continuing uh, our previous discussion on sustainable urban development uh, with Haslow on 8th, and taking a broader look at material sustainab- sustainability within architecture. The two main points that we're probably going to be hitting today are the transportation of materials to and from the worksite. Uh, transportation is one of the most polluting sectors in the world. And, you know, while a granite countertop from Italy may look nice and seem, you know, awesome, it isn't very sustainable and is actually very polluting. In addition, we're going to be talking about alternative materials, such as using wood instead of steel for buildings, and also alternative energy sources for the property and how different materials play into that. And while I cannot wait to dive into that, we first need to introduce our wonderful guest host today, Connor Austin Jesse Sass, who is an architect at YBA Architects. Connor, why don't you go ahead and, well, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about how you got into the field. Sure thing. Uh, thank you so much, first off, for having me on the podcast. Um, I think I got an architect similar to a lot of other architects with Legos when I was a kid. Uh, since then, you know, my passion for it has only grown. Went to school to Cal Poly, uh, graduated in 2015. Since then, I've worked at a variety of different firms, a variety of different types of projects, ranging from an elementary school, uh, research facilities at OSU and apartment buildings throughout the West Coast. And I'm currently working out there here in Portland, uh, YBA, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's that's cool. Um, anyway, but I think we'll kind of first go into finishing up our discussion on sustainable urban development and going back to looking at Haslow on 8th as a good example. Um, and just with how it's designed, it's designed to lessen the burden on public public utilities and also reduce greenhouse gas emissions through that. Um, Felipe or Zane or Connor, do you guys want to give us a little bit more information about that? Yeah, so this was uh, Haslow on 8th. It's over in Northeast Portland in uh, in the Lloyd District. And this was something that uh, GB, uh, GBD Architects did where they built a decentralized wastewater treatment plant and they integrated it into Haslow on 8's urban development. Um, and I think it turned out really nice. It, it does a lot of nice features. And I think it hits on a lot of the things we're talking about with uh, sustainability. Nice. Yeah. Um, no, I, I took a look at it and it's a pretty cool complex. Like, you know, uh, is it finished yet or is it still within construction? Yeah, I think it's up and yeah, uh, everyone could see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if it wasn't for quarantine, I definitely would, you know, go <laughs> by and take a look at it. Um, but no, it's from what I've read about it, it's really cool what they're doing with um, kind of the ecological side of things and um, how they have like, you know, their own wastewater treatment and reuse plant on site. And that kind of goes into, you know, alternative energy sources and, not relying on the grid as much. A um, diagram 
that they made for the building that goes into detail about their wastewater system and stuff like that. I'll, I'll send it to you guys. Um, but I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to see in not just a theoretical sense, like in, it, instead of just having that sort of word of mouth of like, oh yeah, they have this, it's a thing that they do having something like this diagram. Um, it, I feel like it's a good way to advertise that in a way um which i i don't feel like i see often honestly um here I'll, I'll send it to you guys right now actually okay yeah and we'll be posting this link as well with like our blog post as per usual so you guys can all go check it out at, P at psuvanguard.com under the multimedia section <laughs> shout out shout out um yeah no we'll check that out uh but I mean, I know, Felipe, you, you kind of took the lead on Haslow on 8th, and do you kind of have anything else to talk about it? or? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think the reason I wanted to cover it and the reason um, it ties into sustainability is it's, it's something that uh, the occupants could live with. I, I know um, from Connor's standpoint, as, we, as he starts to um, uh, mingle with us, is that um, the different types of things we see in our environment really make a, a lasting memory. Um, if you get the attraction to a building or you get the attraction to, to a certain environment, it makes it more memorable and it makes it more meaningful, especially when you could do something like wastewater reuse um, and tie it with a piece of infrastructure or urban development, some type of community. I think it, it adds a tremendous value to sustainability and to the community. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's unquestionable that uh, putting these things that are often visible to the public uh, on display uh, in ways that not only are visible, much like a boring transformer or something like that, but also beautiful and interactive and something you can get up close with and touch and play with. And uh, I, I think it's a really important an exciting thing that, that architects are starting to do and that developers are starting to be willing to do as well. I guess from that standpoint, uh, Connor, how hard is it or what types of conversations um, or when do those conversations occur? Is that normally in the upfront stage at least or does that kind of go through um, plan check or city town hall kind of meetings? Uh, the decision usually gets made somewhat early in the project. Um, Usually it'll stem from a requirement. So uh, on-site water management is a requirement in Portland, either through green roofs or allowing the water that falls on the site to get into the ground. And you know, a lot of times that stuff literally gets buried under the garage and you don't see about it, you never hear about it. Other times that's just not possible. So sometimes it spawns from a pretty boring requirement that you know about from the beginning of the project. Uh, but then at some point you decide, you know, let's, if we have to have this thing, let's, let's make it beautiful. Let's make it cool. Let's make it gorgeous. Let's make it a, a moment. And when you decide to do that, then yes, it then goes ahead in front of the design commission uh, and they approve it. And then you have to do it. And once you cross that threshold of to do it, then that's usually when the client gets on board and goes, okay, we have to do this thing. Let's make it something that's a, a selling point. Um, 
and and then you get to do something beautiful with it. I feel like there's an element in there um, with going through the, the city and things like that, where it's kind of like, from my experience, it's always been like, ah, oh, all these like regulations and like rules and stuff like that, that it's, it makes this design so hard. But then there's also things like that where it's like, oh, you need, it is regulated that you have to have that water filtration system. And that, like, that's just something good to have, but it's one of those things also where it's like, there are all of these bad things that make those regulations seem mostly negative, but they're also there for a reason, you know? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you got to look at it from kind of two perspectives, right? The perspective of the the environmentalist who would be happy to take these measures, you know, no matter no matter what it looks like, because it's the right thing to do for the environment. And you got to look at it from the point of people who don't put sustainability, you know, forward or beliefs. Well, I shouldn't say beliefs because it's not really a belief system, but you know, you understand what I'm saying. Um, so, as designers and planners, we have to look at it from both points of view, and, and so that's when it is not. You have to change it from being a problem, you know, some annoying thing, and stop fighting against it and embrace it, and look at it as a design challenge. You know, how can we take this piece of infrastructure that the client might not like or that some people in the public might think is ugly and turn it into something that not only meets the requirements that a environmentalist would want it to meet but also meets the requirements that by walking on the street would want their city to meet such as beauty and i like that i knew that it was the haslow was really applicable because even from the financial side of it i mean the it set aside that it's um, lessening the stresses on the water infrastructure. Um, but from a financial standpoint, I think the Haslow project was able to get some uh, money, some um, reductions in infrastructure costs because they were uh, lessening the infrastructure. They were using smaller wastewater pipes or they were reducing the, the volume of water being sent to the water treatment plant uh, to be treated for drinking water. Um, but I liked it from the financial standpoint. I think Owen oh, were talking offline the other day about how different companies are motivated or have different motivation for kind of applying these things. No, that, that's for sure. And um, I mean, with a lot of the, you know, new environmental stuff, uh, there's a lot of government, you know, tax subsidies and uh, other uh, incentives to go green. Um, beyond just, you know, regulations that are put in place um, that, you know, reduce their costs overall. Uh, so that way we start getting greener and greener. Uh, there's a lot of subsidies on green energy. And, you know, for the longest time, there was huge subsidies on electric cars. You know, that has kind of diminished recently as they've become more and more popular. But to actually get it adopted, the government would give, you know, the the buyers of those cars, um uh money back from like however much they spent on it and that kind of you know leads us into our next uh segment the transportation of materials and that was something else we were talking about offline the other day and connor actually had a good point about 
the financial side of things, um, it's often cheaper to buy materials from halfway across the world due to scale of economics and government subsidies um, than buying them locally. I know in China, they offer huge subsidies on different industries uh, to make their products cheaper in addition to you know the cheaper labor there. Um, but Connor, do you kind of want to run us through what you said about the whole transportation of materials and why it's cheaper to get them from across the world? Sure. I mean, I think you kind of put it very clearly and concisely just now. I mean, it, like you said, it's all about the scale of economy and it's all about politics, you know, as much as we wish that politics might stay out of design, uh, politics are just life, you know, and how, how we manage it. So, um, like you said, the, the politics of subsidies and, and other versions of economic incentives or decentives, if, if that's a word, um, all have a huge influence on the cost of a building. You know, the, like I mentioned yesterday, the reason that there's a whole field of price estimating and construction is because the price of every little element of your building changes constantly depending on, you know, if Iran's going to war or if the president tweets or if a mine collapses in Venezuela. All these things have impacts on the price of things. Um, but to, to get back to your main point, like you said, yeah, it, it's steel is produced in insane, insane, insane proportions. And all things really are produced in insane proportions in China. And the more that you make of something, the cheaper you can sell it. And that's, you know, combined with subsidies, why it's cheaper to buy things shipped all the way across the world. Uh, than buying them in your backyard because, fortunately, the mom and pop shop that does custom steel fabrications down the street simply can't sell their products at a cheap enough rate to compete with these mega corporations in China. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, and it's kind of sad that that is happening, and it's just the nature of what it is. But you know, as we look to build a more sustainable future, you know, it's probably going to be driving up the costs of buildings if we want to use more, you know, ethically or uh, environmentally friendly source materials. And I know, Felipe, um, you were saying that, like, in theory, it should be cheaper to, to get it closer because you're not having to ship it across the world, right? Yeah, I think that's the conversation we we're having yesterday was, um, uh, does it limit you at all by... Um, having to go get these mass-produced items to uh, use in your buildings? Uh, does that limit your selection, your ability to create uh, new and interesting spaces? I know that if you're forced to continue to get what's readily available or get what's uh, on, on the shelf, um, that it increases your ability to kind of spit out more buildings. Um, and it's just kind of trying to find that balance because sustainability is is vast we've been talking i think in episode one um about how the different kind of varieties of sustainability and what it means to everybody but it's it's different for each individual and kind of each sector um and i, I think it's really uh, something to continue to watch in the architecture kind of industry yeah certainly i, I feel like uh there's a lot of ways I feel like you can say that something is sustainable. 
and I kind of feel like there aren't many wrong ways to say that something is sustainable unless it like is flat out the opposite or something like that. But I think just because you know different communities have different ideals on what is necessarily sustainable doesn't make any of them more right than the other, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a really complex issue, you know, if if we compare it to say something like figuring out how structurally sound a building is. Easy problem to solve, right? You all you have to do is do the calculations and boom, you have a design that is perfectly structural, if that if that's a way you want to put it. Whereas if you want to make a building perfectly sustainable, suddenly you've got an infinite amount of a near infinite amount of variables that you have to balance, you know, one against the other. Um, say the most sustainably sourced wood comes from the Pacific Northwest and you're building a building in China. Yes, it's a huge, it's very unsustainable to ship something all the way across the world, but then you're balancing that with, well, they have sustainable practices at that tree farm, whereas if we just got it from here in China, we'd be clear-cutting rainforests or something like that. That's not an example, but that's an example of how you definitely, there's so there's just so many different factors you have to balance and think about, uh, which even if it was a cheap thing to do, it's still a hard thing to do. And uh, it's it's a very complex issue for sure. You, you sort of have to pick your poison um, or to look at it more uh, positive light, pick your, pick your dessert, <laughs> pick, pick what things you can do. Um, you know, you're not always going to be able to get locally sourced materials. You're not always going to be able to get biodegradable materials, but if you can, as much of it to be as sustainable as you reasonably can thankfully there's a lot of ways to do that yeah and beyond just like the sustainable aspect that's also the same thing you have to do in finance right you have to pick your pick your dessert or pick your poison between like two different items because you know you may have the bud you you have a budget and like you want to build something sustainable but one item is going to cost more can you do it I mean, you might not have the money to do it, so you have to choose, okay, do I want to make this one more sustainable because that's we can fit that within our budget and we're going to actually get you know a proper uh, rate of return on it, or do we go full sustainable and we go over budget and we, we totally blow that percent rate? So there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it and it can be quite tricky at times. I feel like there's another factor there besides money also, um, which, like you were saying, Connor, is all these different factors that come into play when you're working with trying to be as sustainable as possible is that a lot of the times those factors won't overlap with each other. So, like, it, it's not just weighing, like, okay, I can afford one of these two things necessarily. It could also be weighing, like, okay, I could put this in, but that means that I can't do this anymore. So I'll have to figure out some other solution for that or some other solution for this, that kind of a thing. So it, it's not even as simple as just weighing costs too, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated, complicated game we play designing buildings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because it's, you, you got to be, 
got to be a lawyer. You got to be a material scientist. You got to be a negotiator. You got to be a mathematician. Um, and then just focusing on sustainability or, or, or saying on finance, I mean, you can go down into rabbit holes on so many different aspects of it that like you were also saying contradicts itself oftentimes. Um, and those decisions usually end up going to the client and they usually just end up picking whatever makes the most sense financially, unless it's a client that's, I mean, I mean, it depends on the client. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to is the flavor of project that the client's looking for. I feel like on that note also, with all those different sort of roles that you play, all those sort of jobs that come into play, I feel like a, a politician is a really prevalent one too, because if you are playing with all these different variables and you have to decide, okay, well, we can do this or we can do this, you have to sort of decide what what seems the best, you know, and that's never necessarily a black and white question. It's, it's, there, there are definitely a lot of, of morals that come into play there. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, especially your point about being a politician when you're working on something like a school where your budget is literally politics. It was something that was voted on by the voters in the last election, you know, how much money, how much big of a bond is going to the school districts for new, for new schools. And so then you've got the project manager working for the district, playing politics against teacher, playing politics against the principal, playing politics against the uh, parents. And, you know, all of them have different values on sustainability and economics and social justice and different things and uh that i mean schools in particular are a very very politically focused uh project type um yeah yeah where where <laughs> it gets even more complicated because not only do you have these incredibly intricate small parts of a project that go into these deep rabbit holes but now you have 100 times as many clients <laughs> who all have different values for those different things. I feel like then it's also uh, like in that situation, it, it isn't even just um, politics in terms of like which element of sustainability is better. It's politics in terms of which of my hundred clients, as you said, is the most important, who do I play to really? And like, how is that gonna determine how well they like my project, how well it, it makes me appear, how well the project actually turns out, and at how do those actually align with my values or um, what I believe to be the most sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. And that, um, that, I, that I certainly have struggled with quite a bit in my career, uh, because as you know, I'm on a podcast right now about sustainable architecture. I minored in it, and I'm in college, I certainly care about it quite a bit. And uh, trying to balance and rationalize my own values with values of a client, and then taking a step further, like you were saying, playing it to like, okay, I have to balance my values against these hundred other clients and have to figure out which ones 
are going to care about which issue the most and like, okay, on this issue, I'm going to try to please this client. And on this issue, I'm going to try to please that client. And hopefully this won't notice bring up for that. It's, it very quickly becomes a mess. And, uh, that's, I, I, I have no, lots of sympathy for, for politicians as corrupt as many of them may seem the game that they have to play to get things done even when you're trying to do good things is uh it's a crazy field i guess that i certainly did not enjoy being a part of yeah i, f I feel like there's a large element of politics and sustainability no matter what angle you're coming at it from whether it's architecture or business or anything like that um and politicians definitely do sort of play a big role in that. Um, yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, in a lot of sustainability can be, in, in practical application, sustainability is at odds with uh, capitalism. And, and whether we like it or not, a lot of our politicians are quite focused on the economy and maximizing profits for business people. And um, yeah, not really sure yeah. where I was going with that. <laughs> I mean, I, as, as a finance major, you know, I'm definitely playing the capitalism game, but I still feel sustainability is, you know, something that's very important that we need to focus on just due to, you know, you can't make money if the world is on fire. You, there, there's no way about it. But to kind of move back into, you know, the whole, you know, sustainable part and moving away from politics after I got down that rabbit hole a little bit, uh, I, have a, I have a question to you, architecture. Uh, I was going to say people, but that's a little bit rude. Uh, you architecture types. Um, how does alternative materials, you know, kind of play into buildings because that's an area that you might not really think about when it comes to architecture and especially for the layperson like myself you know when we think about architecture we think about you know the visuals or maybe it's like oh yeah it has like a cool heating system like it's underground underfloor heating but we don't think about what alternative materials may play into sustainability uh yeah i mean in reality, buildings, that's what all buildings are, are, are materials, right? It's just a, it's a million, million different pieces of material that we're assembling in creative ways. And so just like we have the power in our everyday lives to choose what we invest in, you know, we, we can choose to buy the sustainable sneaker or we can choose to buy the cheap plastic mass-produced one. Um, and so same, similar in architecture, every single element, every single part of the building, you can choose, uh, to be the, the most destructive towards the planet or incredibly good for the planet or somewhere in between. Uh, thankfully, uh, the one way they're not, not being failed in sustainability is in material sciences. There are a fantastic amount of innovations that have been made especially in the last 10 or 15 years uh, in making loads and loads of really, really great sustainable materials, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there's been a huge boom in heavy timber construction, you know, cross laminated timber, 
um, or CLT. If, you, if you've seen that around, glue lamb beams, you might have heard of. Um, we are sort of in a good place to do that because most of the timber in the construction industry comes from the Pacific Northwest. So thankfully, it's sort of a perfect storm here for us to be leading that charge because it's locally sourced and it's cheap because <laughs> it's mass produced here. Um, everything from the major structure of the building, like down to the clips that we use to attach a sliding door to the wall. Um, anything, if you think hard enough and take the time to research it, you can choose to, to be as well material in your building. So there's a huge opportunity there for us, which I'm thankful for. I got to say also, you mentioned the CLT and glue and beams. Um, I visited recently the new hacker office space um, on the east side of the river in Portland. And seeing this like high-rise building made complete, almost completely structurally with wood, I mean, it's, for one, it's a, just a really cool thing to see, but it's also a really beautiful thing to see. Having those glue lamb beams and the CLT flooring quick, quick, is... Guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you define that? Because I honestly have no idea what that means. Uh, glue lamb and CLT? Yes. So they're similar. Um, they're both essentially pieces of wood that are laminated together um, to create a larger piece of wood. So with glue lamb beams, it's a beam that's made of uh, several smaller pieces of wood that are laminated with glue together to create one structural unit, um, hence the name glue lamb. Um, and then CLT is cross-laminated timber, which you mentioned, Connor. Um, and it's essentially the same thing, but it's it's more of a slab. Um, and you have different pieces of wood running in opposing directions laminated together uh, to create the super strong wooden slab. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a really great, great uh, definition. Um, to expand a little bit on that and why this is such a big deal for us is the alternative is concrete or steel, right? And concrete is the most consumed product slash material in the entire world. We use, I mean, we use concrete for everything, but unfortunately concrete has, as I'm sure many of you already know, a huge, huge carbon footprint. A, you have to dig a lot of the materials out of the ground, which is highly destructive. You have to move all those materials all over the place from where you dig it up to where you manufacture it, which has a huge carbon footprint. And off gases as well once when you're, when you're using it. So finding an alternative, and then steel, obviously, having to heat materials up to high temperatures requires a lot of energy. Digging those materials out of the ground in the first place, you, you, you understand. So... Being able to take these young trees, not having to wait for a tree to get really old and then clear cutting an old forest like we used to do, but taking young trees that are on the same plot of land over and over and over again, sustainable forestry, being able to take these small pieces and glue them together to make big pieces that at the end of their life cycle can just be essentially composted uh, is a huge, huge 
thing because you can now erase that giant carbon footprint you would have had with all that concrete or steel in your building. And and to the point that you were making earlier, it's gorgeous. It's just so much better to look at. Us architects love the look of brutalist buildings, but most people think brutalist architecture is ugly and cold and hard. But finally, now we have sort of like a, a, a perfect material in my mind to build with because it's sustainable. Uh, not not concrete and brutalism. I'm getting back to CLT here. Um, it's it's beautiful to look at. It's sustainable. It's recyclable, uh, and it's beautiful to both architects and the general public. You know, you walk by that that hacker office, even if it's at nighttime, and you look up at it, and you can see the underside of the floor slabs made out of this wood, and you're it's just like looking up at this building that looks like it's made out of entirely out of hardwood floors or something like that, and it's it's. It's really significant and it's really beautiful and I'm really happy that it's catching on. I think it's imposing too, right? It gives you guys, it gives that space a sense of uh, of of weight to it by just looking and, and seeing how that kind of large scale, that prefabricated um, pieces of, of timber are just kind of setting the mood for that area. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, timber, in the word timber, you know, like that, that has a... a, a baritone warmed with it you know we, we we've <laughs> old spice has a deodorant that's flavored timber i'm pretty sure you know or for the timbers like it's it just has this the, the idea of big monolithic pieces of wood um, whether it's in architecture or the smell of it or in life is just such a it's ingrained as a value to us that concrete and steel doesn't always have for sure and I think that that perk too there is the uh, it's solid engineered, right? I mean, you and Zane were talking earlier about material sciences. And I think the material sciences are constantly finding those better mousetraps to make everything more efficient, more stronger. Um, you guys talked about structural. Uh, I think that's uh, material sciences and and the building that Zane brought up is is an awesome example of that. Yeah, uh, really quickly, just gotta put this in there. Go Timbers. Um, but yeah, you're <laughs> right about the. Um, advancing this technology within materials um and in glue lamb as a matter of fact um there have been people i can't remember who it is exactly um but they developed a glue for glue lamb beams and for clt that is incredibly sustainable it's very green and so even the glue that you use for these wooden pieces is starting to be sustainable too, which I think is a really great step. Yeah, absolutely. Undeniably. The, the, big, the big innovation that came um, really quickly, just to kind of put a, add another bit of flavor to this conversation is, you know, why, why haven't we been doing this before? Gluing wood together seems like a pretty novel idea. And we've actually been doing that for a long time with plywood. Why haven't we been doing this more recently? And the answer to that is that uh, fire code. For the longest time, uh, you weren't allowed to build big buildings out of wood because it was perceived as a fire hazard, that the whole building could go up in flames. You could kill way too many people with one fire. Uh, but thankfully, now in the material sciences field, the testing has finally been done. They figured out if you make the beams big enough, the outside layer will char, protecting the inside layers. Uh, which which 
then when uh, the fire code finally was saying, okay, yeah, heavy timber is safe. You guys can build, build big buildings with it. And then finally, that's why we're seeing a whole bunch of it now. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I I actually never knew about that. I had heard about Glulam and CLT before because uh, both Zane and I had talked about that previously, and that's kind of what introduced me to you know alternative materials um, within architecture. And while we haven't touched on you know energy use yet, we will be talking about that more after the break while we take a specific look at a house called the Edgeland House in Austin, Texas. Um, but no, thank you guys so much so far for the uh, first conversation. I really enjoyed hearing it. I, it was very, very interesting. But yeah, we'll head into the break now and we'll be back shortly. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening to uh, PSU's Architecture Podcast. I uh, just wanted to take a second and reach out and shed some light on some other uh, PSU content that's happening, especially in the multimedia department. Uh, we have Your Own Mind, hosted by Owen Mitri. He's Vanguard's multimedia director. He's also co-host on our architecture podcast. And there's also situational significance uh, with Hannah. She's our Vanguard news editor. Uh, so I, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, I encourage you to do so. Uh, they're all available on psuvanguard.org.net. Um, and yeah, feel free to check it out. Um, again, we'll get back to uh, this episode of Architecture and we'll continue our discussion on sustainability. All right, and welcome back from our very quick break right there. So previously on the first half of the show, we were we, we touched more on uh, sustainable urban development. Uh, we looked at transportation of materials around the world and also uh, alternative materials, specifically CLAM or CLT and uh, glue lamp. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, but now we're going to take a little bit more of a micro and smaller scale look at um, every at, at a couple of cool buildings here. Uh, the first one I kind of want to bring up is this one house called the Edgeland House, uh, which is developed by Bar Barry Chen Architects in Austin, Texas. Uh, and we'll be having that link um, in the blog post of this episode. But it's a very interesting house for uh, many different reasons. First of all, it's built somewhat into a hill. So it is uh, somewhat underground. So that uh, provides very efficient use of thermals, as well as uh, using double glazed uh, glass within it to, again, just help out with thermals and energy use, as well as it being able to reuse wastewater um, with underfloor thermal heating and all these uh really cool other sustainable elements in it um in addition every sea no matter what season it is fall winter spring or summer uh there's actually different kind of flowers that bloom on top of the house uh which i find very interesting but we'll kind of uh now just discuss this house and the different elements what do you guys think about it well there's one oh, man. You oh go for it sorry <laughs> I was just gonna say, I uh, was I. This is one of this has been one of my favorite houses for a very long time. So when I when I saw that we were featuring it, I was very happily surprised. Um, it's yeah. I mean, just to describe a little bit more for for listeners that don't have a computer in front of them, it sort of is like this modern 
machine that's opening up out of the ground and it is like caught in this moment where it's half open half closed and it still has the the landscape kind of draped across the top of it but if you walk through the middle of it it's this very angular glass building that uh i think personally is a perfect uh representation of of what sustainability can be it can be a beautiful sexy modern piece of architecture that also blends into the environment and is very is very responsible so this was a great project for you to pick um one thing that i want to point out about it also that i think is a really great solution uh in this house that can be implemented in other buildings but you don't really see it that often is uh one of the elements of their skin system um the outside of the building essentially where they have um uh, here they have planters but they're acting as shades essentially that are aligned right so that the summer sun won't get past those shades based on the angle of where the sun is in the sky so you won't get any as much of that heat from the summer sun into the building but they're spaced apart enough where the winter sun, because it's lower in the sky, can come right through that and heat the building. Um, and then they also have um, thermal mass inside. They have these concrete floors and they also have a pool at the building, um, which can suck up that, that heat from the sun and slowly radiate it back out. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like someone wanted to do a case study house where they said, what if we implemented all of the different passive sustainability features that a house could have and put them in one house? <laughs> Which is, I mean, like you said, the, the sun angles and playing with thermal mass and um, evaporative cooling with the pool. Um, the, these are all features that are low-hanging fruit. They're really easy things to do, and once you do them, they just sit there and do them by themselves. Uh, whereas nowadays, we often think of sustainability as technology, uh, you know, like kind of stopgap measures after the fact, like, oh, we'll put solar panels on the roof and that'll make it sustainable, but it'll be just solar panels on top of an otherwise building. Whereas this one, to your point, has all these, like I said, kind of low-hanging fruit passive strategies that are really easy to do if you think about them and are really elegant when you think about it. Yeah, and like also I wanted to mention as well that uh, it is uh, also restoring or I guess fixing old wounds to the earth. Uh, this was a place where there was an old Chevron pipeline just running through and it, the removal of it like left a giant scar in the ground, which is where they built the house. And so it's, you know, fixing these previous human mistakes, making something beautiful from it and they're also reintroducing 40 you know different native uh plants to preserve the ecosystem so beyond just you know for human living and building it sustainably for like you know cheaper housing or sorry cheaper energy costs and doing it along those lines it's also uh biologically helping out the surrounding area as well by restoring some of that ecosystem back into it from what we previously had uh hurt and mending old wounds. Yeah, exactly. Um, so honestly, I, I agree with you, Connor. This is like one of the favorite house, my favorite houses that I've seen. I discovered it actually for this 
episode, but I, I absolutely fell in love with it as soon as I saw it. But um, moving on from efficient sustainability to kind of the alternative materials talk, uh, Zane, you brought up the Ningbo Museum. Yeah, it's uh, so the Ningbo Museum, um, it was completed in, I think, 2008 something like that. Um, but it's a it's a history museum in Ningbo, China. Um, and it's created using essentially the remains of different houses from villages nearby. Um, so there were, uh, th there was this project to make this uh, museum, right? And the architect um, saw all these demolished buildings in these villages surrounding the area um and he went to his client and essentially said hey like can we use these um this is a way that we can essentially keep the community here um while also using an easy and local material that it it's going to be i mean i would assume cheap seeing as it's the ruins of buildings um but they they use them to create these this really really cool facade where it's essentially all these um different stacked uh types of tile and stone um i highly encourage you to go look at pictures of this building um but it's it's this essentially random mishmash of all these different types of of like i said tiles and stones that are all stacked together as the facade of this massive building um, and I, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's a building that I really enjoy. I think it's really creative. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. I, you sent it over for a couple weeks ago during our production meeting and it was, it was an awesome building to look at, um, and using, I, I guess to that end, using the demolished pieces from uh, new urban development that was already kind of being thrown away and demolished buildings. Uh, Connor talked about it earlier. It it costs money to generate all this concrete and all this material, and even when you dispose of it, when you compost it, it takes money to take it apart and kind of get what you can out of it and and recycle as much as you can. And so I think it was really creative for that architect to do that. Um, and it and it instills or it keeps whatever um, memories that were in those buildings, whether they're painted or whether they had a certain texture. I really like that it kept that history in that region that way again another wonderful wonderful building that just checks so many boxes um like you said using local like micro local materials um it's a giant building that otherwise would totally be out of scale for its context but the fact that you can run your hand along the wall and when you get from one end of the wall to the other, you've you've touched an entire village, you know, and you can see it in the fabric of this building is is gorgeous. You know, it's I, I'm in in addition to being really passionate about sustainability, I also think that context matters a lot. Uh, I don't think that means that everything needs to look exactly like the buildings next to it, but it should at least respond to the environment around it. So making this building out of the remains of the village that was here before or nearby it before is just such an elegant solution that I love so much. And the result is beautiful. Yeah, I think it 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 
allows architecture to heal that community if if when those buildings were torn down there was some type of memory associated with them and when you're able to reuse them that way it, it allows that architecture to heal that community and, and it's kind of low fab in the terms of you you could hire locally to transport that material you source it regionally um so that's really uh really close um and you train wherever you can i mean that's kind of uh, low fab uh, as you could get is is how do you take these pieces and make them work in a in a new um appealing way um i, I again I, I this building is is really nice uh, it, it does touch on a very interesting uh, tie back to our earlier conversation about globalization and the source of materials. And interestingly enough, it's often in some of the more rural parts of the world that we see the most sustainable buildings um, because labor is so cheap there and because budgets kind of often have to be lower it, it, they don't have the same economic situations that surround us here in the United States or in other parts of the Western world. And so their kind of economic situation makes it a perfect place to be able to execute really, really elegant, sustainable solutions, um, like being able to hire a bunch of presumably uh, out, out of their down on their luck, you know, villagers and being able to employ them to, to, it's sort of uh, a little dark when you think about it, but if you're paying them to take apart the pieces of their old homes and build this new museum out of it. But another way to look at it is it's kind of like reusing the workforce that's already there. So so it's in a lot of ways, very, very sustainable. In other ways, maybe not so much, but very fascinating to think about. I would say also on that point that... Um when you go to make a building or when you go to hire someone to design a building or anything like that, you're essentially making an investment. And a lot of the times in our society with things like high rise buildings and things like that, or even a lot of the times just people's homes, you want to design that building as an investment financially. Um, whereas there it's a lot of just an investment for your well-being you know you want to invest in this so that it can fit your needs and stay around for as long as possible because you don't want to keep putting more money and more effort into it whereas here it's a lot about like okay how can we make this building as cheaply as possible and get as many units in it as possible so that we can get the biggest financial outcome from it you know it, it's a very different dynamic behind the intent of making that building certainly i mean and that 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 is uh embedded in just the project type you know a, a museum is not a necessarily a for-profit development uh apartment buildings in the u.s get built and then two years later the client sells it on profit and that's that's it and so they, they're definitely not thinking about the long-term uh life cycle of a building uh whereas here or, or when i say here i mean this project that we're talking about um a museum that's usually being built by the people that are gonna run it and own it and have it for 
a long time. And also being a museum, museum is not an apartment building. You know, apartment buildings get torn down all the time because they have no significance. But a museum, especially one with as much culture as this one, it, you want it to last for as long as possible. So intrinsically, you have to spend more money on it. You have to you have to make more of an investment because, like you said, you're you're a steward for it. So stewardship has a massive influence on sustainability. Right, and that's also one of the reasons I feel like why you want that building and its construction even to last so much longer, which is. A, massive part of sustainability not having to replace your materials every 20 years or something like that you know if you build something that'll last a hundred years that's going to be far more sustainable yeah i mean uh the, the when tesla first kind of hit the market there were all these people saying i'm going to sell my i'm going to get rid of my prius and buy a tesla i'm going to get rid of my truck and buy a tesla but the reality is if you just keep the same car that you already have and drive it for 20 years until it dies, that's far more sustainable than buying a Tesla because of the intrinsic cost of all those materials and the footprint of all those materials. So yeah, like, like you said, being able to keep a, build a building that's upfront much more intensive and expensive, but if it lasts hundred years or a thousand years. I mean, the Colosseum, the Colosseum is made out of concrete. If that was to be made today, it would be a very unsustainable building. But the fact that it's lasted for 2000 years makes it the most sustainable building in the entire world. I mean, that and the fact that it doesn't use any electricity probably helps too, but. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with you guys. I think to, and uh, to wrangle Owen in is, is it's really being intentional with your decisions whether you're using certain types of material or using a certain type of floor plan, uh, it says the Ningbo Museum is 30,000 square meters. So that's about what, like 90,000 square feet. And so to construct this massive building, you really have to be intentional with your decisions. And, and you really have to, uh, the community has to spend the money like it's their money. And it's really that ownership. Um, and being able to make smarter ecological decisions and financial decisions. And I think from a financial side, Owen, I think that's that's how all accountants and financial experts would want you to want to treat their money as if it's their own. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the world of finances, it's complicated, but it's also simple. I mean, you know, you're you're supposed to be making a profit and you need to decide what's the best way to do this and like, how am I going to get the greatest return? And, you know, returns can also be subjective, especially, you know, when it comes to clients with based off of the context of the project, um, you know, and what your goals are for it. But I mean, from strictly financial standpoint, uh, being sustainable is actually starting to pay a bit. Um, if we look outside of architecture to the rest of the world, you know, fossil fuels are actually falling behind by a lot you know they're not profitable anymore and the only reason that they're still getting money is because of the government subsidies consistently renewable energies such as um hydropower uh, nuclear energy as well as uh solar power are all becoming much 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 more profitable uh so you know as time goes on right now material some materials may not be cheap to use um but it'll just get better and better as again the skills of economy come into play um but 
looks like we're almost out of time. Do you guys have any kind of closing thoughts on what we've talked about today? I have one little thing that the math nerd in me is screaming about, and I'm sorry to throw you under the bus, Felipe, but um, 30,000 square meters would actually be more like uh, 330,000 square feet. Oh, there you go. Yeah, because yeah, I knew one foot is square. three point or one meter is three point three feet. So I think right. I think that's a good catch on the on your yeah. part, Zane. <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's because it's squared is the thing. There you go. Yeah. I didn't even question. I should have looked at this building and been like, that's definitely not a ninety thousand square foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like close to three times as much as what you said. But you know, see me not. Uh, being in architecture, I, I, I'm terrible with, uh, you know, distance measurements, but it's not something I need to know. <laughs> yeah, leave that to us, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'll just do all the financial stuff. Um, anyway, uh, thank you so much, Connor, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's been, it's been an absolute blast being on here and talking with us, you guys. And as someone who's in the professional world talking to to presumably folks who are still in school i guess the last thing i just kind of wanted to say was that uh the the the, the real world or the 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 job market the the interactions with the clients and stuff it's not always kind to sustainability and it doesn't always make it easy for sustainability but no matter how hard things get it is something worth fighting for and it is something that if you can't at least convince the client of, you can sneak it under their noses. And we should make it our mission to always be champions for sustainability, no matter how hard it is. Thank you. Yeah, I think that is, um, I think that's a good uh, last, last word. Um, you know, again, we, it's kind of, you know, our generation or people our age um, who need to like push for being more sustainable and uh, change the world. So, you know, Clients may say something, but we we should still push for being sustainable and ethical in our environment. Um, but again, thank you so much for coming on, Connor. Thank you to Felipe and Zane for, as always, for co-hosting. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.